fam. How is it going? Welcome to the Free Trail Podcast. Of course, I am Dylan Bowman, still riding a high from digitally spectating Hard Rock over the weekend. Wow, what a weekend it was. What a race. What a fantastic exposition of everything that makes our sport so special. I wasn't even there, but have been consumed with the Hard Rock vibes at home, hunkered down, still waiting for our baby. I'm hoping to share some fun conversations from the athletes who were in the race over the next few weeks. But today I'm joined by Jonathan Albin, the British mountain running and obstacle course racing superstar, who I think is one of the most interesting and dangerous athletes in the sport right now. For those who don't know Jonathan, he is an obstacle course racing world champion who also happens to be a fantastic trail and mountain athlete. He has been on an absolute heater recently, winning OCC as part of the UTMB festival last summer in a wild race against Robbie Simpson, where they both smashed the existing course record. He then won the Templier race in October of last year over in France, one of the most important races in all of Europe. And then this year he won the Maxi Race Marathon and very impressively delivered a convincing victory at the Mont Blanc Marathon over in Chamonix, France, just a few weeks ago. Jonathan is planning to do CCC at the end of the summer, so I felt like this was a great time to have him on the show, get to know him a little bit better, and hear how he has been able to so firmly establish himself as one of the best athletes in the world in two different sports, trail running and obstacle racing. It was great to chat with Jonathan. Hope you guys enjoy the conversation. As always, the Free Trail Podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Speedland, the best trail footwear on the market. The SLHSV is available now at runspeedland.com, the brand that pioneered removable carbon plates, probably invented it as far as I know. It's such a cool innovation where with a single shoe, you can have two very different, very distinct running experiences. If you're doing a workout or smashing some hill repeats, as I like to do, throw the plates in and experience the propulsive benefit. Or if you're just heading out to rip some easy miles, take the plate out for a little bit more of a cushioned flexible ride. It's like having two shoes in one super high quality, super durable package. They are made in small quantities also using a commission model, which means that when each shoe, when each size sells out, they are gone forever. They are collector's items. They are pieces of art. So make sure you check out the SLHSV at runspeedland.com. Tell them Debo sent you. Okay, hope everyone enjoys the episode with Jonathan Albin. See you on the other side. Jonathan Albin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you were just saying that uh, you're unfortunately uh, suffering from COVID right now. So I appreciate you taking the time. How are your symptoms? Are you feeling okay? uh not so bad like i thought i was gonna like i hadn't had it all the way up until now uh but i guess there's uh never a good time to have it but i think like just after a race we're still two months before the next race is probably like the best time i could hope for if i was <laughs> going to get it in the summer so i'm not feeling too bad but not feeling too great either and just take it one as it comes yeah do you spe- suspect you picked it up on your way back from Montblanc marathon are you back home at yeah 
I think like there was a few people I've been on contact that have actually had it uh, and then tested positive since. So I just got home yesterday and tested positive as well. So wow. uh, that's the way it goes. Uh, well, yeah, we'll see. Everyone seems to react to it quite differently. Yeah. And it's definitely probably better to have it now than two years ago or a year and a half ago. So uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Well, thanks for taking the time to do this, even under the circumstances. And, uh, you know, obviously uh, you have been around the scene for a while now, but you and I don't know each other. And I think this is a great opportunity to do more of a deep dive on your story, introduce you to more of an American audience as well. I've been a longtime passive observer of your career. And I think your story is really interesting. And uh, I think we should sort of start from the beginning as far back as you feel comfortable going. Maybe let's just start with a generic background conversation. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing, where you're from, how you ultimately made your way into into sport and uh, now living in Norway. Uh, so as a kid, like I had like a really usual English upbringing, like a little town just outside of London, went to a normal school. Uh, yeah, like I was actually a pretty nervous kid to be honest, like a little bit of an introvert. I like, didn't really like spending that much time with big groups or like just like being not a loner, but like you know, just bumbling my way through uh, relatively happily. Uh, but I actually played skate hockey as a kid. So it's exactly the same as ice hockey, but on wheels. Uh-huh. Uh, so that was we my call sport. that we call that roller hockey. Yeah, 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 roller hockey. Yeah, like, yeah it's, um, that was my sport. So I played from when I was like nine up until I was twenty. Uh, and yeah, I, I finished school. I went to university, but went to a local university so I could uh, stay home. Worked at the same time, like during the evenings, so, like real standard kind of upbringing, I guess. Until I got a job uh, working on the London Underground as a building surveyor. And started to run to and from work to keep fit or cycle. Um, and I'd already quit hockey, but I knew I needed to sort of keep fit. So I, I started to use my commute as my training. And also started entering into a few events. I think the first one was Tough Guy. So it's this obstacle race uh, where you like break through ice in the middle of winter. You crawl like under barbed wire, jump over fire, like all this crazy stuff. And I kind of wanted to see if I could do it. You know, I'd never really tested myself as a man. So yeah. I thought I'd like try and find out whether I was tough enough. Uh, and yeah, I did it. Like I got really cold, but I actually managed to survive through. And then it was at that point, that obstacle racing became like a thing, like Spartan suddenly appeared, Tough Mudder, like all these races started like coming about. And I just started entering into them because they were like pretty fun, like a full all-round fitness. And it kind of felt good to train for them. And I started pretty much winning all the ones I was training for. So that kind of like then meant I, I wanted to train more and like win more. And I kept telling myself they weren't that competitive. It was just, you know, a new sport, fun to do. Yeah. Uh, but I still obviously enjoyed doing them. Um, so, yeah, so I was like training away, doing these races, doing pretty well. And then my partner, now wife, said, you want to move to Norway? Because uh, she's Norwegian. And I was like, yeah, all right. So I quit my job in London, like really big, scary thing for a little <laughs> nervous John. Uh, moved to Norway but didn't get a job immediately to so spend like four or five weeks training as a professional athlete almost yeah. because I had all the time in the world and it was at the same time that I went out to the States to run the obstacle racing world championships and the Sparta world championships uh, and when I won both of them I got back to Norway and was like oh maybe I am like quite good at this sort of uh, obstacle racing stuff and my partner said well like you can't get a job so you can't talk Norwegian so won't you just be a, a runner 
And I was like, all right. So that's what I've been doing since. So that was, say, seven years ago. And now I've been an athlete uh, since. From, like, the obstacle racing, I, I kind of went over into more trail running and mountain running and sky running as well. So I kind of had 50-50 kind of season. And then in the past two years, I've been more sort of uh, trail focused because I mean, the races are a bit more competitive. You have to really have good shape on certain days. Yeah. Uh, so I've had a little bit more of a focus on the trail and mountain, but still do some obstacle racing. And that's just how I've made a living the past, uh, past, past years. So cool. Well, thank you so much for that illustration of your evolution as a human being and as an athlete. And there's so much in there that I think we'll expand on, but maybe first just talking about your existence up there in Norway. It sounds like your wife is Norwegian and that's how you guys ended up there. Where in the country are you? Are you, aren't you in, in Bergen? So we were in Bergen. That's where we moved uh, initially because my wife was okay. going to do her, uh, her masters and Bergen was great. Like it rains all the time. Like it rains yeah. so much, uh, but the trails are really nice. The mountains like a bit small, but they've got nice trails. Like it's a great yeah. place to train and great athletes. Uh, but when Corona came along, uh, we had to go back to Bergen because you weren't really allowed to be away from where you live. But we kind of didn't really want to go back there. Like we felt like we'd done pretty much Bergen as much as we could. So we thought, where do we want to go? And we just drove up to Romsdalen. So it's like eight hours drive north. It's near where Emily and Killian live. Yeah. And the mountains are pointier. It's like more alpine. You've got way better ski season, like crazier trails, mountains, scrambling, climbing. Like everything's kind of just a bit like extra so we got here and we immediately felt like we were at home and we've been here yeah. for the past two years yeah i mean maybe does that uh, reflect what you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation you you being sort of like happy being on your own maybe not a loner but you know you said that in your childhood you were happy to just kind of do your own thing it seems like being eight hours north of bergen in norway it seems like it's probably a fairly remote existence even if it is peaceful and in, in a mountain environment is that maybe a reflection of your personality as well yeah i guess so like i do like nature way more than i like people so i think this suits me <laughs> down to the ground but then that being said there is an amazing community of athletes here like That's there's nice. some crazy athletes that live in this small area and we're skiing together in the winter and we're running together in the summer and i've learned so much especially from killian since i've been here about like specifically training to be a mountain trail endurance athlete so I've actually learned so much from the people here, but it's also really quiet. Like there's not that many people here. I sleep so well because it's like not one sound at night. Like yeah. there's so many perks of kind of being tucked away and then sort of coming out and then sort of like racing with all the crowds and stuff and then being able to come back and chill Just out in sort of a really nice quiet little area. So let's exactly. talk about that a little bit more, your relationship with Killian. I think one of the reasons why he and Emily moved up there is because <laughs> it would allow them to experience that quiet and solitude and especially them being world famous champions. I'm sure they're enjoying what you described in their personal lives, but you and Killian, it seems like have been doing some training together. You even raced each other at sort of a local half marathon. That would have been a really fun thing to witness you two guys going at it in remote Norway on a road half marathon, but maybe yeah, give us a glimpse into what you just described, your and Killian's relationship, what you've learned from him and and any sort of details you can give about how you guys train together. Yeah, I, I hope I haven't ruined Emily and Killian's sort of quite, li quite little corner of the world too much <laughs> by moving here as well. Um, 
but no, it's, it is really cool because uh, the first thing we really notice is some days, you know, you just don't want to be training. It's like tough. You've been training a lot. You get out, but then you see someone else out doing the exact same thing and you realize, well, they're doing it like I can do it. And your level of commitment automatically gets risen because the athletes here are really committed. And for them, it's no big deal to go out training every day, twice a day, three times a day. So then for you, it's not that hard either. And you can kind of feed off that. Um, but Killian, especially, like I've definitely changed training philosophies since being around him. So I really think he hasn't just taken like a road track running philosophy and then applied it to the mountains. He's actually developed his own way of training for endurance mountain and trail running, which is, I think, very different to how you sort of approach the training for it. So that was like crazy for me. And I think by applying a bit more of that philosophy, I've really improved myself. Uh, but also can, just... Can you be more specific the fact about that, that? Like, is there anything um, in particular? I've, I've, one big thing is like, I always used to train sort of how you're meant to. And I always thought like, I train properly. I train most of my miles really slow. And then some of my miles was like really fast kind of thing, like the 80-20 kind of like really polarized training. And I thought that was like the best. And then I see these really good athletes and I see the fact that they're like pushing a bit harder a lot more of the time. And I think, well, they're training wrong. But then when you look at Killian and you think he's training wrong, it's like, well, he's the best. <laughs> so working. how is he training wrong? So I realized actually with my approach, it was great for me at the time. And I got some really good results off of it. But I was spending very little time actually running at race pace, uh, which is really important. Obviously in track and road running, your race pace is kind of threshold speed. So when you're pushing really hard, that is your kind of race pace. But for us running two, three, four, like up to 20 hours in the mountains, we are generally racing slower. And you need to spend time at that speed to become efficient. So I found that I was actually doing my miles too slowly or too fast. I was never really building this efficiency at this sort of middle speed or this sort of like zone two kind of half hard, not really hard, but not really slow either. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's just uplifting because that sort of effort level is like way more fun. You get more endorphins, you get more training done in a short amount of time. So you get more time to recover from. So there's like loads of perks which I never really actually realized. Uh, so that was like really uplifting. It meant I could go on those useless mountain adventures where you push a bit hard and think of it as training rather than think of it as a wasted day out. Yeah. Uh, so that was that was great. Like uh, that was really cool. And I really do think that incorporating that into my training has helped like a lot. It's just, yes, the injury risk is a bit higher if you're going to do it all pounding miles on the road. So you have to be careful. And that's why the skiing or cross training, like cycling in the summer, skiing in the winter for me is really important. So you can do this kind of like pushing a bit a lot more often, uh, but try and reduce the injury risk because you, if you do it cross training, you haven't got the same pounding as with the running. So wow. really trying to use that cross training so you can do that middle or moderate or steady intensity has been really important. Wow. So taking that sort of like that philosophy and then applying it in my own way has been like really, really cool. Very, very cool. Well, let's talk more about training here in a sec, but first I want to ask you because it's something I talked to Killian about on the podcast recently as well, that I think you could probably provide fun perspective on YouTube being foreigners in Norway. And we talked about sporting culture in Norway and sort of why Norway has been able to produce such phenomenal champion endurance athletes in this current era. If we think about the Ingebrigtsen uh, Inge brothers in track, Christian Blumenfeld and Gustav Eden in triathlon, of course, Steon in trail running. Any comments on Norwegian sporting culture that have maybe rubbed uh, off on you or why the country has been so successful in this current era of endurance sports? 
I don't know. I think like two things, especially as Norwegians, when they set their mind about doing something, they do it really well. So if even if when you see like kids at the gym or like not kids, but teenagers at the gym, they all seem to have warm up routines, cool down routines, like special stretching and foam rolling routines. They've got like they've got all they've like done their homework. They're all doing to the best of their ability. And that seems to be like a Norwegian trait, maybe that if they're going to do something, just absolutely apply themselves and do it really well and do their research. Uh, and also there's a big skiing culture, here, especially with cross country skiing. A lot of kids are skiing from when they're young. So they get a good engine build without the sort of impact and the running related injuries, which are, are really common. So you get you, you get that engine built and then you can specify it to running maybe a little bit later in their life if you haven't made it as a skier, because to make it as a skier, you have to be really good. Very good. So then these yeah. yeah, these athletes can kind of sort of then uh, ah. go off and find their niches. But I mean, with the Inga Brixons and, and Blumenfeld, like that's maybe not their background, but that's how I feel about like, a lot of other athletes. Fascinating. So let's go back to talking about training a little bit in our little text exchange as we were setting up this conversation. You mentioned that you and Zach Miller had recently had a long conversation about the fundamental differences between European training philosophy and American training philosophy or something to that effect. So maybe summarize that conversation with a, our great American champion, Zach Miller, and then maybe that'll set up uh, us talking about your specific training and what you've been up to recently. I think, um, I'm not sure, like it was a few weeks ago now, so I think I've forgotten the majority of it, but I think one of the main things he was so surprised about is the fact that I would go out running or at least training twice in a day. Uh-huh. And that was like a big thing. So apparently the majority of Americans, it's kind of like a one a day kind of thing, like a two, three, four hour kind of one-off session most days. Whereas for me, that's like one or two days a week. I do that. Whereas other days, I, I my normal day would be to say two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening, for example, and then keep the quality up a little bit, I guess. And that was probably one of the main differences, I think. But um, we did have a lot of in-depth conversations all the way into the wee hours of the the night. So uh, it would have been good for me to write down a few of them. <laughs> well, so let's, uh, let's just kind of use your training as an example, because I sort of perused your Strava a little bit. And it does seem that you're a really versatile athlete and you do a lot of different things. One of the things I'm also curious about, as we've sort of discussed Norway at length already is the winter training and sort of how that sets up the rest of your season as an obstacle course racer. And especially as a trail runner, you mentioned that cross country skiing is big and Norwegian culture. It probably indicates that it's something that you do during the winter months. What's your focus during those dark winter months up in the North and uh, how does that set up your season? So it was actually something that I kind of uh, was almost forced into doing more of because I had a problem in my foot. So if I ran more, it hurt more. And I knew I had to take time off in the winter from the running so I could get through the summer season. And I never actually managed to rest the foot enough to get it fixed. But it's actually something I did manage to fix during Corona with a with an operation. But I had at least four or five years where I had two small bones in my foot that were broken and it was painful. Mm-hmm. So I knew I had to train, but only run enough to have good shape. So that meant I had to find a good form of cross training in the winter. And in Norway skiing, like is just something you almost have to do because everywhere's covered in in snow. So I was always already doing a bit of cross-country skiing, but that's when I got into ski mo and ski mountaineering. So um, bought some skis and absolutely fell in love. Like, it's a crazy sport, so fun. The conditions change every day. It's just like an amazing form of training, low impact, but just 
amazingly fun as well. And that means you want to do more of it. When you do more of something, you get better. And just generally, it was like an amazing form of training. So I started doing schemo more, and that's just been more and more each winter. So now in the winter months, especially, I'm aiming for like between 10 and 15,000 meters of climb a week on the skis. And then plus still trying to maintain some running, like 30 to 50 kilometers, but mainly on the treadmill, mainly like kind of good quality, just keeping the biomechanics there. Um, and, and then, then you cross as, skiing too? Yeah, like some, but not as much. Like schemo okay. has taken my heart, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, so it's that much more special sport, you know? <laughs> yeah. it, it just makes sense to me because it's a form yeah. of skiing. You can do any size mountain, any steepness, pretty much. You can go out any snow conditions. You can go out with your schemo skis and you can have a hell of a lot of fun. Whereas cross country, someone has to drive this track. You have to kind of, you know, use these tiny little skis, which are pretty useless, except for when you're following this nicely made track. And if the track doesn't get driven that often, it's like less fun. It's just kind of like a bit more specialist. So that's kind of in my mind, kind of, you know, the difference between track running and trail running. Like one is kind of a bit more controlled and you do it and it's fun, but it's not like it doesn't steal your heart. Whereas schema was kind of like you know, getting out into the mountains, yeah. exploring like this. It, it just like resonates with me on so many different levels yeah. compared to cross country. So, Like I mentioned, I just had Killian on the show and we recorded at 10 p.m. Norwegian time and it was still perfectly, you know, light outside. and of course the opposite is also true. I'm sure that in the winter months, it's dark, dark, dark. Do you think that that hardens the Norwegian athletes to deal with those months of cold and dark and maybe is, if, give, provide any details that you can about what it's like sort of training through those winter months? Like, are you using a headlamp for most of your sessions and, or just taking advantage of the few hours of daylight that you get? Yeah, I think definitely as a professional athlete, that's a big perk that you can just go out during the middle of the day when there's more daylight. Yeah. Uh, but I do like use headlamps a lot as well and do a, go out and do a lot of night sessions. Actually, when you've got bad visibility, like flat light in the mountains, to go out with a headlamp is way better. So sometimes yeah. you'd wait for it to get dark. It's just then you need a powerful enough headlamp uh, so you can see when you're skiing. So like a moonlight kind of 3000 lumen headlamp is almost like a necessity. And then that makes it really possible uh, yeah. to go out in the dark. But I mean... It is, it is tougher in the winter, but it is something you get used to. But I still think it's way worse if you're going to wake up at 6 a.m. and go out and get your session done before work and then go to work. Like for me, that toughness is just like incredible. And I can't believe that people actually managed to get these hours done and have a full-time job and a family as well. So I think that probably builds more toughness than uh, being a professional and having to train a little bit in the dark. Yeah, just something I was curious about, just the basics of getting the training in throughout the winter months when you live in I think you you do definitely get used to it and it's like the cold especially you just dress up warmer when it snows it's actually a hell of a lot lighter because it kind of reflects light a lot more so it's not as bad um and you generally look forward to each day because the weather is always slightly different or the snow conditions are slightly different so time just passes because you get like weeks with certain types of conditions and then other weeks that don't you just kind of live by the forecast plan your training by the forecast and it's amazing how time just sort of like flow by yeah interesting so talking a little bit more about your strengths and weaknesses as an athlete i mean you've just been on an absolute tear recently and we can go through some of the race results but in looking through some of your blogs, it seems that you sort of view yourself as a very strong descender, but not as strong as a climber. Talk about that 
balance and how you manage to, or like how you view yourself as an athlete, how you're working on perceived weaknesses and embracing perceived strengths? Um, so yeah, I think like generally I was always a better descender. Uh, I always blamed it on being like not heavy, but like a little bit bigger than some of the athletes on the way up, but also just less specifically trained. Mm-hmm. Like I never really worked on my uphill running stride. I think I've got a natural flat running stride, but an uphill running stride is completely different. Like your feet are more under your shoulders rather than sort of like crossing in front of each other. Mm-hmm. And I'd never, like I grew up somewhere that's very flat. Like I'd never actually run uphills until I was sort of like 18, 19, 20. So it was it was like, that's a big difference. It took me a little while to realize I actually have to work specifically on that running stride and just work on my general VO2 max or general engine size. And I think doing the majority of my training quite slowly in previous years meant that I wasn't really building the size of engine I really needed or that capacity to be able to go uphill for a long time at a good, a good speed. Uh, and also the specific speed work as well. Like I wasn't ever doing race pace uphill sessions really. I was either going too fast or too slow. So all of that has kind of like played together. But one of the main ones was I did have this foot operation during Corona. Uh-huh. I got my foot fixed and then I could train how I wanted to. Like I could actually do the sessions that I wanted to and do the sort of more fun sessions too. And that sort of changed, changed everything. Amazing. So maybe that's one of the contributing factors to this incredible run of success that you've had recently. So I want to talk a little bit about OCR because it's a fascinating part of your story. And I think probably also has been a contributing factor to you being such a great trail runner as well. Maybe talk a little bit about how your relationship has evolved with OCR over the years. You mentioned that you sort of got into it as it was experiencing this massive period of growth and you've sort of lived through a similar moment here in trail running. And you mentioned that trail running is sort of taking up a little bit more of your time and energy now. Um, What's your relationship with OCR and maybe... How did uh, your experience in that sport lead to your immense success as a trail runner? Yeah, I think like when I first started obstacle racing, pretty much tough guy was the only one. And then since then, there came loads of little obstacle races, especially in the UK, and I was doing absolutely all of them. And since then, the big ones have really kind of like yeah, destroyed all the little ones because, you know, the the sport has got, there's a little bit more money and there's like more marketing and there's like the little ones have kind of died off and then the big ones like Spartan are kind of left. And I've kind of like seen the sport go through all the stages up until where it is now, where it's a little bit more organized, but still far from being as organized as a, as a sport should be. Um, and I think like my general fitness and career developed at the same time so from when obstacle racing was just about fun to being really serious and competitive I developed as an athlete it was just about being fun and then I got better and also I got more serious and I got more uh, competitive and I managed to grow at the same time and that meant I learned like a lot of the skills and I changed like generally as a person as that sport developed and then I sort of like yeah grew grew with it and um, that really shaped my career anyway because it was kind of like it, it just like sent me on this trajectory or this wave that I've been on ever since. And I've just said yes to certain experiences or offers and then gone along with that wave and somehow managed to end up where I am now, which for some reason feels right. But if I'd been that 20 year old and said, I want to have won this trail world championships or won that race, I don't think I would have ever got here because I wouldn't have like found that sort of like magic path to where I am now. So I think like it, it seems to have happened really naturally and I think that's been great for me. And I have to say, like, thanks to obstacle racing for that. But um, also obstacle racing as a sport, like it 
it builds you as a person. Like you really do uh, get this all round fitness and this sort of like little bit more of a tough toughness to you. So that may, means that when you do end up towing the line at a trail run or a road race, it's like it doesn't seem that bad because you're not going to have to crawl under barbed wire. You're not going to get ripped up by thorn bushes or jump into a freezing cold lake. It's like really not that bad. And maybe then that just means that when I do go and do other races, which are a little bit less tough, it's like just easier for me. I don't sort of uh, think of it as being as tough as everyone else would. Yeah. It's a psychological edge, probably something you also develop living through the winters in Norway. This is maybe, <laughs> maybe a theme, but living through this massive period of growth in both OCR and trail running probably gives you a unique perspective. Do you have any commentary on what it's been like? living through this period in both sports and maybe anything that you're excited about or worried about between each sport independently? Yeah, I think they're, they're both great sports because they're both relatively like how they started. Uh, and that's probably due to the fact they're not in the Olympics and the Olympics is like the great killer of sports. Like it pretty much changes sports to being more spectator friendly, but so far away from their roots or their purity and kind of obstacle racing and trail running are still kind of just the, the sports they were at the beginning. Like definitely obstacle racing has changed quite a lot, um, but they do still represent sort of like yeah, how they started as sports. And I think that's really, really cool. And that's like really nice. Uh, but that does mean that the sports are less organized than they should be. And there's still, especially in trail, like so many different factions that like you've got sky running, UTMB series, golden trail series, the world championship, type stuff it's like there's so much different things you rarely get one race where all the best people are competing against each other but then trail running is so diverse that you can't really have one race that would sum up who is the best because all mountains are different shapes and sizes like no one trail is the same as so many different distances and elevation climbs and climate and terrain differences like it is really hard to sort of sum everyone up so it's like it's great in one sense and also it is tough in another sense to really be able to tell yourself that you are that good and that's something I've struggled with for like a long time I've always just told myself I'm not that good like to begin with with obstacle racing not that much of a competitive sport I was just good because no one else was doing it or taking it seriously now with trail running you're never at a race where all the best people are there and if there are some good people there you convince yourself they had a bad race or the course didn't suit them and it suited you or this and that so I've often seen myself as like kind of like you've got the Killian bracket you've kind of got the the Stian and the Remy bracket, and then you've got me in the bracket beneath. Okay. And I've been desperately trying to claw myself up the brackets. Uh, and in the last two years, I'm hoping I've made it into that second bracket. Yeah. But I'm still like yet to really tell myself that I have. And that's that's great because it keeps me hungry and it keeps me training hard and it keeps me like uh, really pushing to improve. But then it also isn't great that you, you tow start lines and you're not confident in your ability. You have to continually prove to yourself during the race that you deserve to be there and that you can do really well. Uh, so there's yeah pros and cons of that as well. Yeah. Just a personal curiosity as a professional in both sports, where can you make a better living as a professional obstacle course raider, racer as a trail runner? And how is that? Changed? I think uh, obstacle racing was always where I made all my money because the prize money could be really good. And I was winning pretty much everything. Uh, so that was great. Like I could make great money off obstacle racing. Like it's a real big mass participation sport, and they the organisers pushing some of that money back into the prize money. Trail running had relatively crap prize money, but then once you do get good, the sponsorship can be much better, and brands take it more seriously, 
And if you get into kind of that more corporate world of sponsorship, then you can make um, make more money, I guess, with so less So it's effort. almost like uh, the prize money is better in obstacle course racing, but the sponsorship money is better in trail running. Is that right? Possibly. But then when in the US, sponsorship is quite different and obstacle racing is viewed differently, especially Spartan racing is viewed different in the US. So possibly in the US, you could... Um, get just as much sponsorship money, but that's not something I've ever been very good at because one, I'm not very good at selling myself. Uh, maybe I'm a little bit better these days. But, and two, I don't really like selling my soul on social media, like just accepting whatever money from whatever brand and pushing it out and posting loads and stuff. That's not really like why I enjoy doing. So then you're obviously going to make less money from um, from sponsors. This is why I love following you. (laughs) Um, Well, it's really interesting to talk about with you. And I think, yeah, you just have a very unique, you know, perch of observation of both sports. And uh, it's been fun to see you develop in both arenas and also kind of see how obstacle course racing has left you in a position where you're just so freaking good as a trail runner. But you, do you feel that, I mean, you mentioned that in the last couple of seasons, you've emphasized trail running more than obstacle course racing. And I don't think it's controversial to say that you've probably stake, taken a step into that other bracket, right? Do you think that's maybe as a result of this more concentrated focus on trail running and maybe a de-emphasis on the obstacle course racing in your personal career? In other words, has an increased focus on trail running lent to improvement as a, as a pure trail runner for you? Yeah, I think once you get to the highest level of sport, you have to specify your fitness. Yeah. And that's something I've had to do towards trail running in order to be that good. Uh, and also I was racing so much before on obstacle races, they do batter your body. So it's really, it's easy to be in tune with your body when you train for two, three months, and you kind of know when your legs are sore, when they're fresh, how long it will take to get them back again. Do one or two obstacle races and you're jumping off walls, you're carrying stuff. You're like, you're, you're really beating yourself up. And then it's really hard to tell what your body's like afterwards. So then it's really hard to specifically plan training to get the best possible shape on the, on like the day you need it. So I really do feel like I have had to cut back on the obstacle racing in order to really concentrate on those big trail trail races. Um, and that's like a sacrifice I've had to make. But I, I definitely also feel that in the past two years, I've just generally become more of a dedicated athlete or a stereotypical like athlete. You know, when you look at cyclists or triathletes or like road and track runners, they're allowed to just train to perform at races. When you look at trailer mountain athletes, it's like this unwritten rule that you're not allowed to train properly. You've got to go on little adventures and play on ridges and, you know, just play all the time and stuff. You know, it's, it's kind of not really allowed to be really serious. But actually, like, I've tried to come with the terms of the fact that if I'm going to be that good, I have to try and be serious. And I have to make sacrifices and go on less fun training and do specific sessions. And by doing that, yes, it's slightly less fun. I do get to have a lot of fun in my training anyway, like way more than normal athletes, I think. But it just means that, like, I am in, in better shape for specific uh, races. Free Trail is grateful for the support of Jolbo Eyewear, the best sunglass brand in the game. I've been fortunate to work with these guys for probably seven or eight years at this point. Jolbo was born in the mountains of France way back in 1888, and they have been a leader 
in mountain sport eyewear ever since. Joel Bowe's special sauce lies in the photochromic reactive lenses that adjust to lighting conditions, getting lighter or darker depending on the intensity of the natural light. It's really just an amazing product. You put them on and you keep them on, no matter if you're in the shade, in variable lights or full on bluebird conditions. The glasses adjust for you so you don't have to. My two favorite models are the Ultimate and the Fury, so go check these out. The Ultimate is more of an exposed lens, athletic look, where the Fury is more of a shield design, but both are under 27 grams, so extremely lightweight and high performance. Best sunnies in the trail biz. Go check out the products at joelbo.com. Use code FREETRAIL10 for 10% off your purchase. joelbo.com, code FREETRAIL10. Important note, this discount does apply to prescription shades, but does not apply for those outside the US. Apologies to our international listeners, but big thanks to Joelbo. The Free Trail Podcast is brought to you by Gnarly Nutrition, the first brand to believe in our fledgling operation. Gnarly makes the best nutrition products on the market for outdoor and mountain sport athletes, top to bottom. Everything is first class, much like the people that work for the company. You've heard me talk about the Fuel 2.0 drink mix, the BCAAs, the Performance Greens. Well, today I wanna to tell you about the Gnarly Hydrate Electrolyte Mix. Harmony, my wife, will tell you I am obnoxious and annoying about hydration. I suspect most athletes walk around at least moderately dehydrated day to day. And I think improving hydration status is the simplest thing that you can do to improve your performance. Of course, improving hydration is not just about drinking more water. You also need minerals and electrolytes, which the Gnarly Hydration Mix has in spades. Loaded with electrolytes and B vitamins, Gnarly Hydrate has everything you need to keep your muscles and brain fully engaged to power through your time on the trails and in your daily life. As usual, you can get 15% off your purchase of Gnarly Hydrate and any of their other amazing products by visiting gonarly.com. Use code FREETRAIL15. Back to the show. So, how is there anything that's maybe underrated as a versatile athlete yourself who does a lot of skiing and cycling, anything that you feel is underrated in terms of like something that you do in training that has led to success on the trail that maybe other people don't think of as much, whether it's some sort of other training modality, strength training, you know, lifting heavy things and training for <laughs> obstacle course racing, jumping over things, crawling under barbed wire. I'm just, I'm just curious, you know, as we talk about being versatile as an athlete and keeping things fresh, but also training really specifically, like where the, um, you know, potential marriage between those two concepts exists, you know, between being versatile and also specific. I think, um, like consistency is absolutely key. And that's what I've managed to do really well in the past two years. It's just consistently train well and do the right combination of sessions at the right time. At least that's what I think in order to have good fitness. So I don't think there are any like magic bullets. If you do this one session, you'll get really good. There are definitely some sessions that really help certain things. But generally, if you want to get good, you just have to train generally well for a long period of time. Yeah. And that normally comes down to not getting injured. Uh, so whatever you can do to not get injured is really important. And then also just leaving behind the fact you think that like 
five by six minutes is the perfect session for you or oh it could be six by five minutes like it really doesn't matter as long as you get the time at the right intensities and that's something really cool with killing i could be running along for an interval session see him what are you doing oh i think i'll do this and this and then that and then some more of this yeah okay i'll join like it's not like a specific recipe where it's like 21 reps of this and then two reps of that like obviously you can make sessions like that but it doesn't really matter as long as you're doing the right amount of time at the right intensities at the right time of year in the right sort of quantities then you'll have good shape and it's that sort of like big picture that counts more than saying if i do this interval session six months away from my race i'm gonna have the best legs ever it's like it doesn't really work like that yeah yeah great point well i want to remember to talk about your recent half marathon battle against Killian. Cause I think that would be a really fun story for the audience, but let's uh, go back a little bit further. Like I mentioned, you've been on an absolute tear recently. You've just had one great race after another. And it seems like you've got uh, a couple more fun things ahead of you this summer, but maybe let's start by talking about OCC last summer. I was doing the English commentary for UTMB and so had a great front row seat to your phenomenal victory there you and Robbie Simpson had a great battle ultimately you smashed the course record and you'd obviously accomplished a lot as a trail runner to this point in your career but did anything change for you as a professional athlete after winning on that stage at UTMB I know you've recently signed with the North Face so maybe that's something that evolved after that uh, accomplishment but maybe any other comments about how that OCC victory came to be and how it maybe changed your trajectory as an athlete yeah I think that OCC uh, win was like one of the most painful things I've done in my life to like I just assumed he was going to win through the whole thing and then when I actually started catching him I was so disappointed because I knew I had to put myself in even more pain because I couldn't just give up and I I had to like destroy myself even more and I'd be disappointed afterwards if I didn't. And I actually did then manage to catch him and then win, which was like a massive surprise to myself, uh, but still like a really welcome one. Uh, but that definitely did like, change my career off the back of that season last year. Uh, I, I like, I got really good ITRA scores. Like my ranking went up loads. I got talking to the North Face and it was really this sort of shift from obstacle racing and more wet muddy wet rock type trails to wanting to do races like the OCC or the UTMB uh, or Marathon Mont Blanc where it's a bit smoother trails harder pack and stuff and needing a different shoot in order to be able to do that so I got talking to the North Face and I def- generally, generally became more of that professional kind of runner uh, that had slightly less sponsors but slightly bigger ones that are really going to help me on my journey and help me achieve like what I want to do in the next couple of years and become the, the new athlete I think I can be. Yeah. It's funny because thinking back to the race and my front row seat that I just mentioned, it was clear that Robbie was the better climber of the two of you, but then you would provide, or you'd get a big gap on the descents. And then ultimately you pulled away, I think at Valor scene before the, the final climb of the day. Um, I, I think this is kind of a unique thing. Like you are such a good descender as an athlete. And it's rare that people are able to win the races, you know, kind of <laughs> as, as a good descender. Right. And I don't know, is that maybe something that, cause it seems like recently you've been emphasizing, you know, your climbing ability and looking at your blog post from the recent Mont Blanc marathon, it seems like you feel like you've made big strides in that department. 
in terms of just like your improvement and your ability to hang with the best athletes in the world and then use your strength as, as a descender to, to win basically. Um, any, uh, any reflections on, you know, where that was born from? Was that something that you maybe realized during that battle with Robbie Simpson at OCC? Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure with the downhill running. I just never found it that difficult. Maybe like, I, I'm not sure. I, 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 I don't get scared when I run downhill. Like I'm more scared standing, edging in on icy slope on the skis, for example. But I just, um, I think I've just managed to be good at it somehow. Like, uh, I don't know. Like my, my dad always said, I never won races because I was like the fittest, but he said I won races because I gave a lot of heart or I tried really hard. Yeah. And maybe that's what you get rewarded from with the downhill that if you just really go for it, you, you do well, but then also there is a skill to it. You do have to look up and see the path of beast resistance yeah. and pick where you're going to run and see if there's any little shortcuts you can take and stuff. So there is a, a lot to it. But I think also it's one of those things that if you try really hard, you end up going faster. The key is to not destroy your legs completely, that then you can't climb again. And there were some specific sessions I did um, before the OCC where I was hammering downhill to try and acclimatize yeah. my legs to the downhill. So then they they could take that uh, that impact, and also the shoes helped as well, like the carbon plated shoes. It, the carbon plates used really differently to a road shoe, but one of the main reasons you have the carbon plates, you don't feel rocks poking you through the shoe, and it holds the rocker shape, so you can roll downhill, and that really protects your legs, so your legs can just sort of like have a nice turnover without getting thundered. Uh, and I just really felt that from the first little downhill in the OCC, my legs would just sort of spin their way down. I think, why isn't anyone else running this quick? Uh, and it just felt natural to me. So that was a, a really nice feeling. Yeah. From memory, I, I think I recall Robbie just like having a minute or two on you at the top of the climbs. And then when we get an update from the aid stations in the valleys, you'd always be in front of them or together and then ultimately pulled away at the end for a phenomenal victory at OCC. But then also I watched the replay of Montblanc marathon on YouTube and they actually caught on camera. It feels like where you sort of moved into that front pack at the top of the first climb and you see your white singlet sort of coming over the top of the pass and start charging downhill. And there's, it's clear that that's like a very specialized skill that you have is just being a very good descender, especially in that technical terrain. So Fast forwarding a little bit, you finished your season last year at Templier, roughly 80K race in France, very important race. And it seems like that was a very proud performance for you. It seems like, you know, you sort of put everything together on a course that, you know, is a little bit longer than I would say you've typically competed on to this point in your career. What led to that sort of breakthrough at Templier last year? Yeah, I think uh, that was a race where I just felt like I executed really well. Uh, and I have done longer races, so I knew I could run the distance. Um, I'd, I'd run fast already in the year, so I did have that little bit of confidence that usually I'm lacking. But actually, the run into Tomlia, I had like a bit of sickness. My ankle was really hurting. I was actually really down on myself. But just like as soon as the gun goes, usually I just get into this headspace and it doesn't feel that bad. And it was just a race where I also felt like the terrain really suited me. Like I'm not that used to doing big, long climbs. So typically if, if it's more than a thousand meter climb in one go by the top, I'm like, I should have been going downhill like a long time ago. Like I prefer <laughs> a little bit more undulating. And that's exactly what Tumpiers is like. No climb is more than 300 meters. So it really, I felt like it suited me. And I feel like 
the racing I've done in previous years, like if you go back to like sky running like five years ago and stuff, they were all races that I don't think suited me. And then to actually over the last two years do races, which I feel actually suit my strengths a little bit more yeah. as being like great. Cause I mean, I've worked on my weaknesses and now I get to do courses, which I actually see as being the ones that suit my skill set. Um, so that, that was really cool. And everything just did come together. Uh, and I ran really well, like fueling went well. Like I th- think I just felt like I executed uh, the best I could on that day, uh, even with a little bit of a bad period going into it. In what ways do you think these race suit you more? Is it that sky running is too steep, too technical, too big of climbs and races like Templier and OCC while mountainous, well, with a lot of vertical, the the vertical comes in a more gentle fashion. There's less technical terrain or what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think technical terrain I can handle like fine. That's great. But I think uh, big, long climbs, like I said, I'm not, I'm not that good with, like, I grew up somewhere really flat. Like, it just seems that like when I get on a climb, the, the, the clock starts ticking and my effort level generally go up. I never really get comfortable just going uh-huh. at the same speed forever kind of thing. It just does feel like I'm on a timeline. That's something I have obviously tried to work on uh, over the past two years and do feel like I am improving at. But I was never very good at the big climbs, but really my biggest uh, problem was always elevation. Uh, always living at sea level my whole life and then suddenly getting up to two and a half thousand meters and being expected to race is yeah. horrible. It's disgusting. It's like terrible. Yeah. It's, I like to feel strong when I run and when you run at elevation, you feel weak and you feel crap and it's just like you do perform a lot less well so it's like that was always a big thing and obviously with these trail races uh like tom fears it wasn't elevation and that was like that was amazing for me like even occ last year i was there maybe two weeks before or 10 days before and that was just enough that i feel like i managed to almost race like how i could do but put it at sea level and i can't help but feel like i'd race so much better um but that is something i got elevation tents are always illegal in norway uh since corona the Ingebrigtsens, I think, kicked up a fuss because they couldn't go to their elevation camps. So now they've been made legal in Norway. So I have got an elevation tent. I did use one into Marathon Mont Blanc to sleep in. Uh-huh. And I felt like that made a big difference, especially just psychologically to arrive and feel like you have been sleeping at two and a half thousand meters. Like I know the pressure is not the same, but it did seem to do something. I think they do generally like work. So I think like that, that was like a big thing that's changed into this year as well. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And Templier, I mean, the American audience is probably less familiar with it, but such a cool race to end the season there in France and an awesome victory for you at an 80 kilometer distance. And I think all of us are very excited to see you race beyond that distance, which I think is something that you have planned for this year, but we can talk about that in a sec. Going back to what your dad said about you and that like, you're not necessarily the most talented guy in the field, but you, you race with a lot of heart and you probably that bleeds over into a lot of other aspects of your life, probably in your training as well. Where does that come from in you? Is that a a natural thing or is that something that you've cultivated yourself over the years? Uh, Maybe natural. Like I was always a smaller kid. So maybe like it came from that. When I did play hockey, I was the one that just never gave up. So I'd like lose my stick. The ball would be like between my legs or something. I'd still try to like play with it with my knees or something like that. Or someone gets a breakaway and I'd still be hammering like all the way back to try and catch them sort of thing. I was just the tenacious one that just never gave up. And I guess then if you move that into a, a three and a half hour mountain race, if you don't give up, usually you win because at some point everyone cracks that little bit. 
Whereas if you're that person who would just start and just like keep going for it until you cross the line, then you normally do pretty well. And that's exactly how it feels sometimes with OCC. I just wanted the madness to finish. Like I wanted it to end. And you step over the line and suddenly it's like, ah, oh, you can relax. Like some now you can just stop and you can just be still for like just more than three seconds at one time. Like you can just stop. And that's like a really nice feeling yeah. that it's just so intense for so many hours. And then at some point you just get to turn off once you cross the finish line. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I think people who do come from that team sport background sometimes have that mentality, you know, being the hustle guy or just like being a high effort character. I was how I perform my best, you know, and how I developed my role on the teams that I played on as a lacrosse player growing up as well. Just being like the hustle guy, the guy that tried hard, the guy that played with heart. And uh, I think it does help in in endurance sport as well. So, but also with the pacing, it's like really important because obviously there is this sort of like more type Kenyan type American type go off absolutely all guns blazing and then at some point blow up. (laughs) So it's like a fine line between you've got to start hard and you've got to keep, you've got to keep going till the finish line, but you can't start so hard that that's physically impossible. And I know the body can do way more than the mind thinks, but at some point it's like cracks form. And that's definitely seemed to what what happened at Marathon Mont Blanc uh, with some of the other guys that they tried to follow me on that downhill. And it probably did cost their legs more than uh, it should have. And they would just hang on until the very end rather than playing like a clever race. So you got a race with heart. You've also got a race with your, your brain as well and find the right combination. Heck yeah. So let's talk about this season. Now you, you started off with uh, the marathon at the maxi race at the beginning of May, I guess it was maybe about a month ago now, or I guess about two months ago now. Um, and then you you raced Killian in a half marathon, and I sort of wanted to remember to talk about this. So maybe any t- takeaways from the maxi race marathon or that uh, half marathon against Killian before we finish by talking about the Mont Blanc marathon? Um, no, I mean, really going from the winter with the skiing, there's so much cross training and so little running that it's this transition into the summer running, which is really important. So to make sure you up your mileage kind of very gradually and make sure you do specific sessions where you damage your legs and then cover them so they get used to the pounding downhill. And then adding in races or training races is a big part of that because sometimes you feel like you've got great shape at the end of the winter, but you race like crap. So then your shape has to go down a little bit, but your race form has to kind of come in and you have to sort of train your gut to be able to handle the gels. You have to just generally get better at racing. So that's kind of what the maxi race was. It was a bit of a... I sort of get into a race um, and it was a, a really cool race. And I was really glad that Peth Engdahl entered as well. So I had some good competition because uh, it's a training race, but you want to push hard and you want to treat it as a race. So it was a really cool experience and Annecy is a really nice place. Uh, so that was really fun. And then the next race after that was meant to be Marathon Mont Blanc. So I had my training race and the Marathon Mont Blanc was the, the big race. Uh, but there was a little local half marathon, about two hours drive away. It goes from sea level up to 1,500 meters uh, in a half marathon to 20K. So most of it is like around 8.5%, but there's two slightly flatter sections, and then the last 5K was more at 10%. So Killian had a big training week. I had a big training week, but we both turned up. and kind of Killian's done it a few times before. I'd never done it before. It was like, okay, this will be interesting. Uh, and we started, and I was actually surprised that I felt really comfortable uh, I was actually wearing the Alpha Flies and Killian was wearing his old trail trainers. So maybe that was the difference. But I felt like I was like way more comfortable climbing. It's just 
road running is that there's it's monotonous. You know, after the first kilometre, I knew my legs would feel like that, but worse, just generally through the whole yeah. thing until the end. Uh, and that was like hard psychologically, but then maybe that was good for me psychologically as well. But what happened in the end was like I stuck with Gillian. He'd take a turn in front. I'd take a turn in front. It was actually quite a lot of headwind, so that was kind of nice that we uh-huh. we shared that. And then it just seemed that in that last 5K, uh, it kicked up to 10% and Killian just maintained the same speed, yeah. had the same stride. And I obviously slowed down a little bit because it got steeper. You know, that's what humans do. Yeah. Uh, so then he beat me by like 20, 30 seconds or something. So that was a really cool like, I mean, training race. I mean, it was fun. Sick though. I mean, you guys ran like 90 minutes for a half marathon with 5,000 <laughs> feet of climbing in it. It's freaking uh, probably a, a good confidence booster going uh, into Montblanc marathon for you, huh? Yeah, definitely. Like that was a good confidence booster. Killian said to me, if I'd been uh, Zagama, he thinks I would have done really well. Like, um, so Killian believed in me, but then Killian's uh, an optimist. So like, you can't really, you know, Killian believes lots of things. Yeah, uh, and then it's normally only him that can actually end up making it. Yeah, proving always, it. Uh, <laughs> Killian is uh, complimenting your fitness. It is the greatest. Exactly, but, but but still, like I said, like I have got confidence issues in the week before the race. You always convince yourself that, like, at some points, like sometimes I say, okay, it seems like you have really good shape, but maybe you just will race crap. Yeah, like it doesn't mean that if you have good shape, you'll race well. So then, then you can even like start getting nervous about whether you're actually going to fulfill the shape you think you have. So, I mean, you never go into a race feeling like you have great shape. You're going to absolutely nail it. The the world is like great. So there's always some psychological stuff to kind of deal with, but like I've, I've been racing a few years now. Like I just kind of get on with it. And thankfully the race went really well and I raced like one of the best races of my life. So all was well in the end. So let's talk about that. I'm sure getting the validation especially on an all uphill course being only 30 seconds behind Killian in a half marathon big confidence booster there and then it seems like they adjusted the Mont Blanc marathon course it's typically a mountaintop finish and this year you guys finished in the heart of Chamonix sort of where the UTMB finish line is and the OCC finish line is where you have special memories did they make that adjustment during race week because it seems like it probably played into your hands a little bit of course we've talked about your strength as a descender so a mountaintop finish probably wouldn't be something that you would dream about uh in terms of a course design where was that when was that adjustment made and and did that change your strategy or psychology going into the race uh, i think i knew about that like way way long ago so i think that's been like yeah. that's been the course like since they announced the race date and whatnot so it definitely wasn't like a last minute decision but i definitely do think it didn't mean that it, it suited me any more or less it just meant that like yeah, maybe it did suit me more. Like uh, having a good downhill at the end, you don't, you really win races on the downhill, but at least means that you can plan your race accordingly and feel a bit more comfortable. Or if you do have a lead, you can kind of like race a bit more strategically, um, knowing that, that that end bit might suit you a little bit more. So that was great news for me. I generally feel like the course did suit me quite well, like especially the beginning was very runnable. Like it was, uh, it did climb 700 meters over. 13k but there wasn't much downhill so it was kind of like quite a runnable start and i really do like a good warm-up before i get into one of those big climbs yeah. uh, there's nothing worse for me than when it just goes straight up a thousand meters or two thousand meters from the word go uh because i can just burn matches without actually getting into my effort level kind of so 
Uh, I generally do think the course being a bit more of a roller coaster, it was sort of like a bit more up and down with only one big 700 meter climb at any one point. That did suit me. And I, I think like I prepared for all the specific sections as well, which really helped. Like I went out and recce'd all the sections and then put uh-huh. them together on race day. Like there was loads of stuff that just came together that meant they didn't feel like a marathon. I was just pushing the race went and all of a sudden three and a half hours has gone by and I've crossed the finish line. So that's always a nice feeling. It shows you got good shape. It shows you prepared well, and it shows that you were like hungry to race. So everything was in, in balance. So I just had a really good day, I guess. Yeah. In your post-race blog, you describe a moment where you realize that you're gapping the field on a climb and you say something to the effect of this never happens. You know, you never <laughs> drop people on climbs. Describe that moment in the race and do you view it as a little bit of a breakthrough for you as an athlete? Yeah, I think like definitely I proved to myself that I can climb better than before, but then like I have been working really hard on it, especially for the last two years. So that was that was nice, but then it didn't mean I could relax. Like it still meant that I knew that Emmys and the Avidas were like behind the guys I was dropping and they are exceptionally strong on climbs and they could just sort of like trot up quite easily and sort of catch me up so it was just head down work away try and get into this sort of uphill running stride like we touched on and just keep going to the to the bitter end because that's like what you have to do like even when someone said to me you've got a three-unit gap I didn't believe them like there's it's just kind of like you just got to continue racing anyway then I could race a little bit rarely (laughs) that information (laughs) is rarely accurate but in this case it seems like it was Yeah. Well, awesome. I mean, and it should scare your competition when Jonathan Albin starts dropping people on climbs because, you know, you're definitely one of, if not the best descender in the fields at this point, you and Sarah Alonzo, the women's champion, both took pretty solid Superman falls in the the last descent into Chamonix. Any other sort of like takeaways from the Montblanc marathon as we begin to look ahead towards the rest of your season? No, I think, um, like that forward is actually, I was running down towards this hairpin switchback and there's four guys there, one with a bike and the camera and he's about to start filming for the live stream. So I look up, see them catch a toe and fall over. So I generally feel like if they weren't there, I wouldn't have fallen over. Obviously that's no excuse, but it's like, just like you lose concentration for that split second and suddenly you're on your face. Right. Uh, and that funny. does happen. Like it, it does happen. Like it's, it's you fall oh, yeah. over sometimes just like. It totally does. And uh, both of you guys sort of did the full on belly flop, you know, like sort of sliding on your stomachs and uh, both looked like fairly painful. Are you, uh, you, have you recovered from that fall? I mean, you're suffering from COVID right now. Any lingering residual uh, damage from the impact? No, I think like, especially with the obstacle racing background, any scratches and scrapes doesn't affect you whatsoever. What did affect me was the fact that my right calf locked up in cramp. Uh, because of the fall. So that's why I kind of gave it a poke. It was like rock solid, but then just carried on running and just figured it would loosen up after 100 meters, which it kind of half, half did. So, I mean, really it was the the abnormal movement that sort of like threw it into cramp, which was more detrimental. But by that point, it was just sort of, you got to get down no matter what. So you just keep keep running. And definitely the descent in the OCC was so painful. And I pushed myself so hard. It couldn't compare to that. So uh, having that fresh in mind kind of did help a little bit, I guess. Uh, I had a little bit of a gap. I could be a bit more controlled and uh, all that. So was try and get down without sacking it any more times. So now looking ahead, 
the rest of the summer. You've got Sierras and all, and then CCC, I believe. So of course, Sierras and all is like 30, 30 K race, CCC, hundred K race, a distance that I think you've done, but it's not a distance that you would necessarily consider yourself a specialist at, at least at this point in your career. How are you looking ahead towards those two races? Yeah. So, um, that race plan, it wasn't really, if I was going to look at it and say like what I would need to do in order to be in the best shape possible for CCC, I don't think I'd probably choose to do Sierra's now a week and a half before. It was just, it's one of those big famous races that I need to experience at some point in my life. So I have just entered. Um, but now with COVID, that actually maybe is a question mark. Like I definitely want to train for CCC and just do Sierra's now. And Sears now also isn't a race you just do. You, you train for it. You want to be fast. You want to show up for that race. So there's still some question marks there, but definitely in my mind, I want to train for CCC. So the idea is I did like a big base building block in the winter in, in the winter, and then sharpened up for these races now in the spring. And the idea is now I want to do like a big, another big load block for the next couple of weeks before training specifically for the CCC. So that's kind of like the bigger picture plan we'll just see where Sierra's now falls into that uh but definitely I want to do really well at um CCC I definitely found last year through the year I managed to have the same gap pace from the shorter distances all the way through then into 10 PS. so I don't think that's going to happen with CCC but I definitely want to be one of those athletes the more shorter distance faster athletes which then can turn up to a longer distance race yeah. and race it you know no sitting down in an aid station I want to race this thing and I want to do a good time and I want to push hard and I want to treat it as a shorter race. It's just obviously that comes with a lot of risk, but that's kind of how I want to approach uh, the CCC. So going back to our conversation about the training, you said that in the winter you did sort of a long base building block and then started to sharpen up for the Mont Blanc marathon. And you mentioned earlier that you sort of had an epiphany that doing your training at race pace is very important. So I'm assuming now you'll sort of transition to maybe longer runs and longer intervals at a slightly lower intensity than what you were doing for the Mont Blanc marathon as an example. Yeah, definitely. Especially like in the weeks before it is a bit longer. I do. Um, I made a training app last year and that's actually really helped me using it like religiously to actually construct my training and see uh, the wood for the trees or like see what I'm doing. So I'll be using the app uh, through into the, the CCC, but obviously putting my own spin on sessions and just changing things slightly uh, to suit. And I think that's what everyone has to do anyway. I don't think like, there's any one training plan, which is absolutely perfect for anything because everyone's different. So uh, there definitely will be more longer, slower sessions and back-to-back sessions and brick sessions where I'm incorporating like a long bike ride and then a run to try and get the hours up and not just pound everything out on the feet, which uh, comes with a bit of injury risk. So there's actually a lot of sort of opportunity there to go on some adventures and go and do some long scrambling day, uh, days out and like have a bit more fun with the training. So I am looking forward to that. Then, but then also doing some harder sessions where I sort of do some lactate buffering and just get my general fitness up loads on the shorter, sharper stuff. Cause I generally feel to have that sort of all round fitness uh, is really good. And I think that is how you get the best result in races rather than being so specifically trained and just doing one type of uh, session. Yeah. Talk about how you use the bike, because again, I was looking at your Strava and it seems like you at least occasionally will do what looks like kind of hill rep sessions on a bicycle as well, which I'm assuming is, 
an interval type intensity. I also noticed that after the Montblanc marathon, you went on an e-bike ride. So it seems like <laughs> you do spend a good amount of time in the saddle. What benefit have you seen from incorporating the cycling, both traditional and electronic? Yeah, I think for me, I think the cycling is just that form of cross training I can do in the summer so I can get the hours up. Uh, but not have that added injury risk from running so much. Yeah. Uh, and I find it really um, helpful. I don't actually do that many intervals on the bike unless I've got like a running related injury. So those hill reps, that's actually just me going out and doing this, this middle speed, you know, like not uh. hard, but not easy. And the way I can get my heart rate up on a bike is to go uphill uh, because it's kind of hard to push the pedals on the flat and get your heart rate up. I think at least anyway, because I'm not that used to the bike maybe uh and it's always fun to count meters climbed as well so for me it's just a lot more fun to go and do an hour and a half on like a 400 meter climb and just go up and down three or four times uh and that's just sort of like fun for me i guess um but yeah so but i would i will use the bike for interval sessions if i have got like a running related injury and i will use it for recovery as well like especially there's a lot of people which don't like e-bikes because apparently it's cheating but for me it's just a way you can go on a six hour bike ride yeah, yeah. and not use that much energy so it's kind of like just a way i'm visiting somewhere otherwise i just go on a 30 minute recovery jog and that's it i'm done or i can mm -hmm. go on like a three or four hour bike ride and see some cool trails and and have a bit of fun and just be out in nature so for me it's just another tool to be used you, you obviously can't compare that bike ride to going without uh, a battery because they're just not comparable sure. but yeah. i mean it's still a tool you can use yeah it's super smart it makes me want to ask one more thing about your strava it's something i noticed it seemed like in the lead up to montpunk marathon you and eric krogvig another norwegian superstar did you guys just do like six reps up the local hill and take the, the chairlift <laughs> down? It looked like, like you were, were just doing a, a vertical accumulation session, the two of you guys, and maybe what purpose did, did that serve? Yeah, that was, um, that they, they built a gondola nearby on this. Uh, there's actually the interval hill that we all use like the most, uh, 700 meters climb in like two and a half K, I think. And they built a gondola to the top of it. So, uh, to go there, and like, it might be that you've already run downhill a bunch, uh, but you just want to get this sort of like boost of your, your base kind of, yeah. so you don't want to do any more downhill running, but you still want to work your engine. So just go there, go up, take the lift down, go up, take the lift down and just doing it as a pair eating when you get to the top and stuff. It's kind of like a almost fun four or five hours, just sort of like just doing something. Cause yeah. we had so much snow this, this year that all the mountains were still covered. So it's not really possible to go on long scrambling days or like long trail runs. It was kind of like, where can we get this sort of like continual load done? And this, this hill had already melted out and there's a gondola. So it's kind of like, we're just going to use it. They built it. So you might as well, you might as well use it. Oh, use it. <laughs> cool. Well, Jonathan, it's been great to get to know you here in the convo. And I've just been a, a long time sort of like observer, admirer of yours as an athlete. I think you represent a really interesting sort of evolution of our sport. Somebody who's world-class on OCR and now who's really coming into your own in that top bracket of trail runners. <laughs> let's, let's close by just like talking about longer term goals. It seems like, I mean, if you do Sears and all, then you're going to be in the mix for the golden trail series. You'll probably do, you know, at least another one of those races, maybe do the, the world final this year, which I think is in Thailand. You're doing CCC. 
What else has you excited, whether it's this season or in the years ahead? Do you see yourself sort of transitioning eventually to the 100-mile distance, maybe doing a UTMB? What else is exciting you in the future? I think uh, in the immediate future, yeah, like uh, to do the CCC and then UTMB would be really cool. Last year was my first time in Chamonix during UTMB week, and it kind of like you do catch the bus. So to do OCC and then climb the next the next run to the CCC and then to at some point try the the UTMB would be would be really cool. Like I have run a hundred miles uh, in an obstacle race, like wearing a wetsuit in the desert in Las Vegas. So I like I know I can run a hundred miles. UTMB will be a, easy a after that. <laughs> it's, it's a very different challenge doing UTMB, but I'm sure it's one that I can do well. And it's just something I want to do in my life. So why not go for it? Go for it now. So that would be like, hopefully next year's plan is just I do need to qualify first as well. Yeah. So we'll see. Like uh, one race at a time. Eh? Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been awesome to to have this chat. Uh, congratulations on that fantastic victory at the Montblanc Marathon. And uh, good luck recovering from COVID. I'm, I hope uh, the symptoms remain mild in the next week or two and that you can hopefully go and smash Sears and all, and then we'll all be excited to watch you at CCC later this summer. Oh, thanks. No, it's been, it's been fun. And I'm sure like, uh, yeah, it's, it's not fun being sick, but it's just something you have to take on the chin. It's better having it now than in, in six weeks time. So we'll see how it goes. And hopefully I can get back to training sooner rather than later. All right, Jonathan. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks so much to Jonathan. Super fun to hear from him. Can't wait to see him race at CCC later this summer. Make sure you go give him a follow on Instagram and on Strava. I've linked to both in the show notes of this episode. Also a big thank you to our sponsors, Speedland, best shoes ever, runspeedland.com. Check out the SLHSV. Make sure you follow them on Instagram as well at runspeedland. Gnarly Nutrition, GoGnarly.com. Use code FREETRAIL15 for 15% off your order. Get some of the best trail, mountain, endurance, nutrition on the market. Jolbo Eyewear. Thank you so much to these guys. Go grab a pair of the Fury model. That's my favorite. Use them every day. Make sure you punch in code FREETRAIL10 for 10% off your purchases. If you enjoy the show, please consider sharing it on social media or with your friends and training partners. And if you are feeling especially generous, you could consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes almost zero effort, but it means a lot to me. So thanks in advance to those who will do that. We've got big changes, big announcements coming up, exciting times for free trail. So watch this space, but that's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. Talk again soon. Love you. Bye.